It's good to see faces. It's good to hear voices. I'm thankful to God for the opportunity to, to be able to gather uh, in some physical capacity, and I'm thankful for the technology we have that affords us to, to, uh, to stream this on Sunday morning. And so um, just quick heads up, there are chairs that are empty. If you're sitting on the ground and you do not want to be, Feel free at any point in time to grab one of these chairs, move it to an area that is shaded and comfortable, and, uh, and take a seat. Um, let's pray real quick, ask God for help, and uh, then we can open up the Word. Father God, you are a gracious and merciful God. And it is a marvelous truth that you have called out to us to come into fellowship with you, to be united with your son, to, to be joined into the family of God, to become children of the living God. That is an amazing thing. It is something that we should not take lightly. And I pray that today as we, as we delve into your scriptures, that you would so clothe us with the mind of Christ, so give us the, 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 the wisdom that is needed in order to discern your words rightly and to see the glory of Christ Jesus shine through just words and phrases in your book. Please be with us today, Father God, I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Our journey uh, through John 3, and we've come to a a series of events where uh, Jesus, after immediately after Jesus has talked to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, about the concept of being born again. These events come in close proximity. I mean, the next verse is what we're going to be reading about today. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which means that the only way into the kingdom is through this experience called being born again, the new birth. It's the only way into the kingdom, and it's the only way into God's family. But immediately after this conversation he has with Nicodemus, the author, John, records a series of events that return us to a man that you were introduced to months ago named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is someone who appeared just in the first chapter of this book. Um, And as we read about his story here, it's going to seem at first glance that it is completely unrelated to the concept of the new birth but I want you to stick with me. This is deeply and profoundly connected to everything that Jesus has just said to Nicodemus. And God willing, that's what I like to turn to. And and, uh, if God allows us to delve deep into this reality. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to John 3, starting with verse 22 is where we're going to be reading. John 3, 22. It says, After this, after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, John the Baptist, was baptizing also at Ainon near Selim, because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, 
he is baptizing. And all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So the idea, the concept of baptism in the book of John was first introduced in chapter 1 when we came across this man, John the Baptist. And this man was called by God, if you were with us back in, I think it was March and February, he was called by God to call the people of Israel to repent. This was how he would prepare the way for the Messiah. And he would call Israel to repent and confess their sins and trust in the one who was to come. And a big part of his ministry was this reality called baptism. In Acts 19.4, the Apostle Paul talks about John the Baptist's ministry, and he talks about it like this. He says, John was baptized with the baptism, or John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. That's how Paul the Apostle describes John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance, of turning away from sin and trusting in the one to come, who was Christ. And the reason why is for forgiveness of sins. This Christ was the Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world, the only one who could forgive us for our sins. And so this was John's entire purpose. This was his ministry. And yet here we see his disciples having a conversation uh, about purification with uh, a Jewish person and seemingly at this point taking an issue with Jesus baptizing in verse 26. And you can hear it in their tone. All are going to him. And so John's baptism has given way now to Jesus's baptism, which introduces the concept, of course, of Christian baptism, or what the Bible refers to as being baptized into Christ Jesus. Jesus's final words in the Gospel of Matthew, most of you know these probably by heart, um, shortly after his uh, death and resurrection, just before, I mean, seconds before his ascension, to the right hand of the Father, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so Christ's final command to his disciples before his foot left the ground was to, was to make more disciples, to make disciples of all the nations. And in fact, this reality, this, this command involved the act of baptism. Baptism isn't extra to disciple-making. Baptism isn't supplemental to becoming a disciple. It is part of what that means. When we make a disciple, we are commanded by Christ to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name of the one true triune God. That's what Jesus is commanding us here. So this is important stuff. The word baptize in the Greek is baptizo, and what it means literally means to immerse or to submerge in, and it's generally connected with the concept of uh, cleansing or purification. It's probably why it came up in John 3. If you remember, 
in John 3, there was a conversation going on between John the Baptist's disciples and this man, this person, we don't know who it was, about the issue of purification. And it eventually led them to ask the question, what is Jesus doing? Jesus' baptism is, is, is confusing to them. And John see, hears this question and he shuts them down super quick. John, John's point here when he shuts them down and says, no, 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 you, you need to recognize Jesus should be baptizing. He's saying, I'm not the Christ. My baptism only exists to point to Jesus. It only exists to prepare the way for him and his baptism. And he and his baptism are of infinite importance. And so John makes this a very big deal, and and that's why we need to ask the question today as we come to this point in the the book, what is Christian baptism? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? Why did Jesus think this so important that he wove it into the act of becoming a disciple of Christ? And so, this is also important, too, because we, we, we went through John 3.16 about two weeks ago, and uh, in John 3.16, we, we found out what grants a person eternal life is faith. It's trusting in Jesus. It's receiving Christ, not to earn anything, not to achieve anything on our own. So why is baptism so critical to this? And, and furthermore, why is baptism brought up right here in John 3 after this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, the experience of new birth? What Titus 3 has already taught us the past few weeks is the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How is that connected to baptism in Christ Jesus? What's the link? And so that's the question that's going to govern our time together today. Um, And to answer that, I want to start by going to Galatians 3, verse 26. So flip over there. We're going to be in a lot of text today. Do not feel like you need to go to all of them. I don't know if they're on the screen or not, but don't feel like you need to go to all of them. Write them down, jot them down, look at the video later on. (laughs) But there's a lot of text for some reason today. (laughs) Um, Paul here in Galatians 3 is, is telling the Galatian church how it is they can know that they are children of God. What is it? physically in their own experience that can tell them that they're a child of God as they look back in their life. This is what he says. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the very act of God bringing us into his family, which we've already seen a long time ago in John 1.13, this new birth experience, uh, being, being born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but being born of God, that experience is expressed here, Paul says, through faith. Our first breath, as a child of God, is the breath of believing and trusting in Jesus. And that trusting is what unites us to Christ, which is why Paul refers to us as being in Christ. We are, we are united to Christ, no matter what your, your ethnic group, no matter your racial group, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter if you are male or female, no matter what distinction you hold, as your person, we are all one in Christ, Paul says. 
And this is the fundamental reason, he says, he links it to baptism. That's why we have baptism. This is why we are baptized into Christ Jesus, because we have put on in the new birth this, this reality of who Jesus is, and we belong to him. We are now sons and daughters of God. We are in his family. And this is the reason behind baptism. Baptism is, is, a, is a kind of picture of this glorious reality. This, this experience that we have through faith of being joined to Christ, you and I being one in Christ Jesus, baptism is a picture of that reality expressed in physical means. And what that means is for us to be joined to Christ means that everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to us. That's what union to Christ gives us. This union between us and Jesus is literally the foundation of the Christian life. And it is visualized in baptism. It's seen and experienced in the act of baptism. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 6. So if you want to flip over there, Romans 6, he goes to great lengths in this chapter. And we're going to look at it in just a moment about why it's so critical for us to see baptism in this light. In Romans 5, just before this chapter, and we looked at this uh, two weeks ago, Paul explained that humankind is divided into two groups of people, two heads on top of the human race. There are two fathers from which all of mankind flows down from, and these two individuals are representatives of all people. The first is Adam the first man, the first human being. Adam is the father of mankind, but you know his story. Adam did not last long. He did not trust God. He sinned and he fell. And Paul tells us in Romans 5 that all of Adam's sin, all of the condemnation, all of the, 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 his state of sinfulness before God, all of that flowed into every single human being who came from him. But Paul in Romans 5 sets the contrast of Adam against the relief of Christ Jesus, the second head of the human race, who is called in 1 Corinthians the last Adam. Jesus came into the world to undo all that had been done when sin entered the world, to undo what Adam had done when he didn't trust God, didn't, didn't embrace God, and decided to go for something other than God. And Jesus, in doing this, creates a brand new family, a family no longer defined by sin, no longer defined by shame, no longer defined by condemnation, but now defined by grace and righteousness that are found in Christ Jesus. And so how does that family happen? That's what Romans 6 exists to tell us, at least the first few verses. Paul answers that in verse 3. He says, do you not know to the Christian church in Rome that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That, my friends, is how this family was created. That's how this family came into existence. For those who have trusted in Christ, we are moved <clears throat> from the headship of Adam, from underneath who Adam is, 
into the headship of Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ. And baptism shows us in plain sight this reality. Our union with Christ is made visible in the act of baptism. Baptism is like a a dramatization of the the signifying of our union with Christ. It shows us how deeply we have been woven into the reality of Jesus. So baptism is not, for the Christian, a light issue. It's not something we have on the side. It's not a nice-to-have or, you know, cream on the top. It speaks fundamentally and shows fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. It shows that we have been joined to Christ It's a visual depiction of the reality that happens when you and I first believed, when we first trusted in Jesus and we were born of God and placed into his family. Suddenly, everything that belonged to Christ belongs to us. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 6. I mean, look at uh, the next verse here. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So think about what that means. Everything, everything that Christ experienced is transmitted to us. It becomes ours. So when Christ died on the cross for sin, and when he was buried, and when he was laid in the grave, all who belong to him, All who would trust him throughout human history were placed in him in such a way that when he died, they died too. That's what it means to be lowered below the water. That's what that pictures. It's the burial of our sinful body, our guilt, our shame. It's the the, the destruction of our, our connection to, our poisonous connection to Adam. And baptism exists to show this reality. But it's not that. There's way more here. Jesus did not stay dead. That's the reason we're here today. Jesus did not stay dead. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, that's why we're here, that in order that is so important. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, if you underline stuff in your Bible, that word is a great word to underline, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is more than dying with Christ, which was a glorious reality. Paul says we have also been raised with Christ. Jesus's body did not stay in the grave. Death did not stop him. He stood up and he walked out of that grave. And so when we are lifted up out of the water, it shows that we we aren't dead anymore either. We are not dead anymore either. We have been raised to new life. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave, which Paul says here was the glory of God, the beauty and worth of God displayed is the same power used by the Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again, to bring us back to life. And then Paul tells us in an amazing verse, verse 5, that this new life isn't just an experience we have right now with new affections, new desires, a new love for fellow man and a love for God. 
But this reality means that there will be one day in the future where our bodies will be raised fully. Death will have no claim on us. When Christ returns for his family, we will rise to be with him forever. So baptism is not trivial. It's not a small matter. It it is a marker of God's work in bringing us life. It, It is kind of like an incarnation of the inward experience of new birth, a picture visible for everyone to see of us being made alive. So think about this. I want this to to hit you guys. If you trust in Jesus right now, if you believe in him right now, you are in Christ. You've been severed from your relationship to Adam and you've been placed in union with Jesus and all that he has done is yours. You are in his family. His father is your father. Now, we do need to keep in mind, and I want to make sure this is, this is clear today, baptism is not the means by which we are joined to Christ. Faith is the means by which we are joined to Christ. The water is not magical. It doesn't do anything physical to us. And this is clear in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us, you don't need to go there, but I'll just give you the verse. He says, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a physical transaction. We don't do something to make this happen. Paul wants to make that abundantly clear here, or Peter wants to make it abundantly clear here. Baptism isn't like washing dirt off the skin. The physical activity isn't what makes baptism so important. It is this appeal, this radical, shocking appeal to God for a good conscience that happens in the heart of someone who was a sinner and hostile to God only seconds before. The only way for that appeal to exist in the heart of a a person who doesn't love God is for God to have reached into that heart and changed them already. A heart that was previously enslaved to sin and hostile, Romans 8 would tell us, to God was completely transformed. And so baptism is this concrete, this tangible, this visible expression of a far deeper reality than water passing over skin. It's like, and I hope this analogy is helpful, it's like a wedding ceremony. Um, a wedding ceremony isn't the ultimate, ultimate root on the bottom cause of a marriage. It's important. It's huge. And people can make the mistake of making it the ultimate cause, but it's not. The ceremony only exists to celebrate the love that is at the root that causes those people to get married. Weddings don't create marriages. They merely display for plain sight the reality of the love that caused that marriage to come together. And so, for example, a ring... The ring doesn't make you a husband or a wife. The ring uh, is, is merely a picture of the love that you have for your spouse. And so uh, and, and we may look at our wedding and, 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 and rightly regard it as profoundly important, but it is a dramatization of the reality of the love that we have, or there's no marriage there at all of lasting value. 
the wedding itself isn't a isn't the reality. It's the essence of the essence of the marriage is is love. And we may look at our ring and recognize and remember the love that our spouse had for us, but the ring is only a picture. And this is precisely the same with baptism. When we think about baptism, baptism is a picture of God's love for us, causing us to be born again. In baptizing us in his own spirit into his precious son, the the physical act of baptism is a picture, it's an image, it's a dramatization. Underneath that, God the Father united us to his son and grafted us into his family through us being born again by the Holy Spirit, which is precisely why when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. All of God, the triune Godhead, was at work to bring you into his family. Every person of the eternal Godhead was involved in bringing us this new life. And that should blow us away. That should boggle our minds. And it should make us ask the question, how in the world is it possible that God would show us this mercy? I mean, you know what you've thought in your mind. You know what you said with your mouth. You know what you felt in your heart. How is it right for God to have given us this grace and this blessing? And this is what I want to focus on at the end of our time today. How does God take rebel sinners of the lineage of Adam and how does he grab them from where they are and put them into his own family, into his precious son? People who have defied him and and dishonored him, how does he baptize them into his holy and righteous son? so that they're no longer enemies anymore, but they are family. And to answer that question, I want to turn to one more passage. We'll spend just a few minutes on this, and then we'll close. Colossians 2, verse 11 is where I want to go. This is probably the most important passage we've looked at today because it's going to bring together all the threads of what we've seen and show us amazingly how it is God can justify bringing hostile enemies into his own family. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 11, in him that is in Christ, you the church were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is how Paul begins to unpack the relationship we have with Jesus Christ and all that it affords us in getting us into this family. And he begins with this concept, this strange concept of circumcision of Christ. He says that it's a circumcision without hands. And so what in the world is that? That is a strange terminology. We know that when the Israelite people were first brought into existence, God made a promise to Abraham, a covenant. And he sealed that promise with a sign. 
The sign was the sign of circumcision. On every man in the people of Israel, and the people of God, this sign would be placed. But Paul is talking about something different here. This is different. This is unique. This isn't the same thing. It's a circumcision made without hands, which means that God is doing this. This is an act of God. This is a work of God. And this circumcision made without hands is talking about the removal of our relationship to Adam. It's talking about the, the removal of our sinful nature in order to make us brand new. It's not just a sign that's placed on a man's body. It is a reality that is experienced by every human being who comes to trust Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about this decisive severing of us from <laughs> a bee, <laughs> from the sinful line of Adam, this putting off of the body of flesh, which is ultimately what the, the first circumcision was always pointing to. The first circumcision wasn't anything in and of itself except that it pointed to this reality ultimately. And Paul links this to baptism. He says, We were buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ through faith by this powerful working of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about the new birth. He's talking about being born of God. He's talking about the, the glory of God shining into the hearts of a, of a darkened mind, a darkened soul, and bringing about new life. That's what he's referring to here, bringing someone from death to life and uniting them to his son. And he's saying, when you see the act of baptism, when you experience the act of baptism, you are showing that reality. When God said, I'm going to bring your slavery to sin to an end right now, and I'm going to do that through your faith in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's going to do next at verse 13 is he's going to tell us how it's possible for God to do this. He's going to answer that question that I asked. How can God take sinful sons and daughters of Adam and place them in his perfect son? Like what, how is that possible? I know what I've done. How did he make this happen? Verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you underline anything in your Bible, here's a great place. That word all, he means it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this, this record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's how he did this. That's the how to that question. At the bottom of the life that God gives us through his spirit, at the bottom of him severing off the root that we have to Adam, at the bottom of that is a single event, the cross of Jesus Christ, where God took all of our sins and trespasses, past, present, future, all of them, every single one, and he places them on his son, and then he nails his son to a cross. That's how God can do this for us. 
And without forgiveness, listen to me, without forgiveness for those sins, there is no life, there is no new birth, there is no baptism, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God, there is no entrance into the family of God. God had to cancel the record of debt that stood against us, which was eternally long. God took that record of sin that demanded infinite justice because he is infinitely worthy and holy and glorious, and he laid that record on his son, and then he pinned his son to a cross. The prophet Isaiah says it like this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The only way you and I could be forgiven, the only way we could receive this unilateral act of divine grace called the new birth, where the Spirit gives us life, and all was, was if all of our trespasses, every single sinful desire, affection, thought, action, deed, were paid in full, that was the cost of our union to Christ. That's the root of our baptism. When you think about baptism, that's what it was. Jesus had to be baptized into God's judgment because of our sin in order for us to be baptized into God's grace. And let me tell you, it is an ocean of grace that we get because of this act. The root of our baptism is the cross of Jesus Christ. Our, our sins had to be, I really want you guys to feel this. I really do. Our sins had to be nailed to that tree. But first they had to pierce the hands of someone worthy enough to pay for them all. And he did that with his life. And so for the next few moments, for those who do trust in Christ, for those who have received him in faith, I invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. We have individual communion cups here. If you haven't grabbed one now, you are welcome to take one. As we sing, I invite you to <clears throat> participate in the Lord's Supper, the physical embodiment of the cross of Christ and our unbreakable union with him. For those who have been baptized, I want you to hear this. For those who have been baptized, I want you to feel the weight of what that means. Your baptism is a vivid picture of Christ's promise to never leave you and to always be with you. Your baptism is a glorious marker that showcases our union with Christ Jesus in death, in life, and forever. And that's why this matters so much. It reminds us of who we are and you and I need to be reminded all the time. And if you haven't been baptized yet, I just want to give you one quick word before we pray and close with worship. If you would say that I believe in Jesus Christ, that I trust him, if you would say that I've received him in faith, then I would humbly ask you to seriously consider being baptized. And you can come to me and you can talk about that later. But you need to know that your faith and love for Jesus, that miracle, that you trust him and love him, you need to know that that miracle, that reality, that experience is so radical that it must be.
celebrated, and this is how Christians celebrate it, through baptism. It must be shown that you have been united to Christ Jesus through faith. Everything that is his, and he has everything. Everything that is his has become yours. Baptism visibly embraces that reality. For those who belong to Christ, there is nothing in this world that can separate us from him. There is nothing We've been united to Christ in his unbreakable promise to us in that same passage in Matthew 28 as he's commanding us to baptize is I will be with you always. He will never forsake that promise. Let's pray. Father God, (laughs) baptism is amazing. that you would give us a tangible experience so that our frail human existence could understand the intangible, infinite experience that occurred when your Holy Spirit came to a broken, sinful heart and breathed on it. And we were lowered into death with Christ and raised into new life with Christ and with Christ we will be forever because of this. Father, as we worship here in the next few moments, as we participate in communion, as we, as we even just be near each other in proximity here and online tomorrow, I pray that you would so help our hearts to see this reality that we would not look lightly upon the glory that's in these words, but that they would transform the deepest parts of our bodies and our souls and our minds so that we, walking in union with Christ Jesus, will recognize that he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us because of the cross. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.